So as you can get surmised from what we just read, today's sermon is a pretty controversial one. Maybe it's perhaps one of the most dangerous sermons I've ever preached. Um, I asked my, um, I told my wife, this is what I go to, this, this topic is what I was going to preach on today. And she asked me, why in the world would you want to do that? And I talked to a couple of my brothers this morning about the sermon topic. And they were shaking their heads and they go, oh, you got to be careful. Because what we have, what we have read today and what we are going to study today, it may be offensive, disagreeable especially to the sisters of our, of our church. Because what Paul is instructing, what Paul is revealing through these words, is the nature of the universe. And the nature of the universe is that the man is the head and the women are to follow men. And at first, and uttering and, and studying about this, saying what I just said, that how men are the head and women are to follow, that goes against the very fabric of our society right now. Where in our society, the notion of authority is very offensive. And the notion of male authority is especially offensive. It seems like the Bible is teaching that the patriarchal system that, you know, feminists are complaining about, that it's, it seems that the Bible is confirming that patriarchal system where men rule and women follow. And hopefully, as we begin to study God's word together, my prayer is that God will reshape our thinking of what this really means. And I think, I think this word is offensive, because our definition of what men, what leading is and what following is, is very different from God's definition of leading and following. So before being offended, before assigning our own meaning to the word leading and following, we need to understand what God means when he, when he assigns men to lead and women to follow. And so that's what we're going to study today. And I recognize it's certainly understandable for women to be offended by such things. Human history, 5,000 years of written human history, is full of examples of how men subjugated women and how men mistreated women. The history of the world it is not an over-exaggeration to say that men have done great evil to women and they continue to do so even now. Because many people in my family and among my, among my friends, anecdotally, I know a lot of women, especially the people who are closest to me, who have been abused by men. For a lot of men, we don't know what that feels like. But unfortunately, it is a common story, common example, common occurrence in the life of many women. Women's voices have historically been muzzled. Did you know women's right to vote is only a recent phenomenon? The Suffrage Act of 1919 is only from 1919 and on women had the right to vote. In the U.S., women, married women, started to have 
property rights. Married women started to, started to have, the law recognizes, recognize, start to recognize women's property rights in 1849. Before then, women did not have property, personal property rights. Men shut women's voices. Men abused women. Men often diminished women and treated them as second-class citizens. And, it's, and that is still going on to this day. And not only is, is the abuse that women have occurred, that, that experienced throughout history, is the reason why men, women are turned off by this notion of male headship. Another reason is what the world defines valuable has been traditionally has been about position, money, and power. The world, ever since the history of the world, the world valued power, money, and positions. But until recently, women were not afforded the opportunity to gain money, power, and position. The world says these things are important, but women were not afforded the opportunity to gain these things. Therefore, by def- by, as a result, women were viewed as second-class citizens. Homemakers, mothers, were viewed as less than men because they didn't have access to these things that the world values. So it is understandable, more than understandable, why women will be offended by the notion of male headship. But I want the sisters to realize, though, that what women have gone through and is still suffering through, it is a result of sin. It is a result of men men and women living contrary to the design of God. Paul is clear in today's verse, verses 11 through 13. Verse 11 and 12, Paul says, In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. The Lord, he means Yahweh, the creator God, made men and women be dependent on each other. Verse 12, For for as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. Paul is saying the way God created creation to be, is that he made, women, he made woman out of man, but from, that, from the first man on, men were born from women. So Paul is saying there is no, that men are not better than women. We all live independently to each other. Everything comes from God. Paul says this male and female relationship comes from God. God did not design one group of species to dominate the other group of species. That is not God's design. But the reality of sin is that men take this God-designed reality and they abuse it. Rather than recognizing women come from God and, they're made, they're, and, they, and, and we are independent to, with, each, with, with one another, men started to subjugate women. The abuse that women go through is a result of of our rebellion towards God. Rebellion towards God means rejecting God's standard and making the world ours. And the result of making the world ours is subjugation of women. But I want the sisters to understand it's horrible what men men have done to women in the history of mankind. That's true. 
but just but even though we have done wrong and abused God's world, it still doesn't mean that there aren't order to things. Just because men sinfully abuse our position, that sin still doesn't mean that order does not exist in the world. God designed the world in certain order. Paul says over and over again, right, especially in chapter 8 and 9 of 1 Corinthians, that everything comes from God. This is what, this is a theology that he preaches over and over again, that everything comes from God. This, the implication is simple. God made everything, but when he made everything, he didn't make things chaotic. He made things orderly. The very reason why we can do science the very reason why the universe is knowable is because there are order to things, there are laws to things, there are structures to things. In the beginning, the universe was, was chaotic. But when God created things, he created things in order. Laws, structure. He did it because there is order and structure Within the, within, within the Trinity, within the Godhead. God is not a God of chaos. He is a God of structure and order. This is what you need to understand. Sin is denying the order that God has made, the structure that God has made, the law that God has made. Sin is denying that and thinking, I can make the world structure based upon my belief. That's sin. But regardless of what I think about, right, even, if we, even though I reject God's order to things, it still doesn't mean that that order goes away. God's structure, God's world, God's law will endure forever. I'm getting thirsty. One second. What salvation looks like is this. So you need to understand that God made the, made the world in a certain way, and God made laws and order and structure in a certain way. Sin is denying this structure and order. But when God saves you, when God regenerates you, when you are born again, what happens is your eyes become open to God's structure, to God's order, and you start to deny what you thought was once right. Being born again means embracing the structure and the order and the law of God. Being in darkness means still being in darkness means denying the God's order and structure. Are we clear, people in the sanctuary? What, what, what I just talked about. And this is what Paul. And this is this is this is what Paul is teaching in verse one. Verse one, Paul says, "Follow my example." as I follow the example of Christ. He's teaching the Corinthians and us that we are to follow Paul's example as Paul follows Christ. We are to mimic, mimic the Corinthians are called to mimic the Apostle Paul who is mimicking his life after Christ. What does it mean to mimic something, follow something? It means... You are looking at someone outside of you, right? And you are, and, 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 and you, because you believe that the person that you are 
like following is better than you. And you want to be like that person. So you want to mimic that person. Mimicking is about being persuaded that the person that you are looking at is better than you in certain things. And you want to mimic that person because you want to be like that person. That's what Paul is alluding to here. Paul is, Paul is saying, don't look at yourselves. Look at me, a spiritual father, and I'm looking at Christ, who is better than me. Jesus Christ is the perfect human being. Did you know that? Jesus Christ is a perfect human being, and all of us are called to mimic this perfect human being. All of us are not just called to be just trapped in our thoughts and our perceptions and our values. No. We are to look beyond our immediate perceptions and thoughts and values and look at the perfect human being and mimic the perfect human being. The perfect human being, Jesus Christ, has his own, has his standard, has his truth, has his values, has his morals, and we are to follow him. In my career, I've been, I've been preaching for, I don't know, since 94, 95. I've been doing it for a while. I've been preaching, most of you have been alive. And in my preaching career, I've mimicked a lot of preachers, right? I've mimicked a lot of preachers. When I listen to someone's preaching, I go, oh, I want to follow that guy. And I mimic that person. But the reason why I mimic those preachers, because I know that they preach better than me. I'm aware of my limitations as a preacher. And when I hear a preacher that is better than me, I want to follow him. Mimicking involves self-denial. Understanding, humbly understanding that I'm lacking. And therefore, I want to follow someone that is better. Mimicking Christ means accepting that your standards, your vision, your perception is lacking. And therefore, you're following someone who is better, the perfect human being. That's what following Christ is about. Recognizing a better standard outside of yourself and following that. We are called to follow Christ. We are called to mimic Christ every day. Are you mimicking him? Are you following him? The great blessing of my life is God continuously tells me that I'm wrong. Oh, it's wonderful. He tells me over and over again. He shows me over and over again how I am wrong about things and how he is right. And I want to be like him. Is that your life? Are you following him? Are you mimicking him? You can only mimic him when you, when you know he's real. You can only mimic him when you fellowship with him. You can only be like Christ when you look at Christ. Maybe for those, of us, for those of us who are not mimicking him, maybe it is because you don't really believe he's real. Maybe we prefer to just stick with our perception, stick with our values, stick with what we think is right, because we don't see the perfect human being. Quiet times, private worship, coming to church, is all, it's all the means to which we fellowship with him, that we see him and we follow him. Are you mimicking him? 
Embrace his standard. Embrace his standards are better than your standards. Embrace what he thinks about your life is better than what you think about your life. Embrace what he thinks about your wife is better than what you think about your wife. Follow him, mimic him. Verse 2, Paul says, I praise you for remembering me in everything, for, I ho- for holding to the traditions just as I have passed them on to you. Verse 2, Paul is praising. Paul is saying, I am so thankful for you, Corinthians. Wait a minute. Why is he thankful for these guys? These guys are troublemakers, right? These guys insulted him, saying, oh, you're not worthy to be followed. I'm going to follow Apollos. These guys have committed sexual sexual immorality. These guys are infighting. These guys are arrogant and prideful. These guys are suing each other at court, in court. But in verse 2, Paul is saying, I am so thankful for you. What's going on? He's thankful. He's praising them. Because Paul is saying they are remembering him. And they're holding on to the traditions that he passed on to them. What does that mean? Paul is, the word tradition here means something that is passed down. And the tradition that Paul uses here, it it means his teaching. Paul is thankful that the Corinthians are holding on to his teaching. The problem with the Corinthians, as we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, is not wrong theology. They had right theology. They had right knowledge of God. But their problem was not living up to what they know. James, right, is saying, if someone who who reads God's word but does not do what it says, is like a man who looks himself at a mirror and and forgets what he looked at and forgets to clean his face. The problem with the Corinthians was not that they had bad theology, but they did not live out what what, what was taught to them. But in verse 2, Paul is thankful that they're still holding on to right teaching. Corinthians, as you know, were idolaters. They worshipped Zeus and Apollos and all the other gods in, in Greek mythology. But after their conversion, they started, they started to see that the word of God was true and, their, and the idols that they formerly worshipped were not. Before conversion, they thought the idols were real. After conversion, they knew that the word of God was real. They were not good at practicing it, but they recognized the truth that God is above and beyond them and what he says is true. Once again, they're embracing the truth, law, standard, structure of God. They moved away from the foolishness of their thinking and embracing the God who is outside of them. You see the pattern? Salvation is about mimicking God who is outside of you, looking at him and following him. Salvation is think, thinking, is, is and realizing how you once thought were wrong. That God's standard is right. God's standard is true. And you, 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 you live your life embracing that standard that is not yours. This is the groundwork. So this is the main theme. God's standard, embracing God's standard and living according to it. 
this is the baseline to which that we build this study about male and female relationship. Verse 3. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head, the head, of, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Before talking about head coverings, Paul is teaching us the structure of reality. Salvation is embracing the structure of reality that God has made. Then what is a structure of reality? Structure of reality is God the Father. He's the head. Jesus submits to God the Father. The man, Christ, is the head of man. And women, men are the head of women. Whether we like it or not, and we don't like it because of all the abuse that men have done in the history of mankind, and that's, that's horrible. But whether we agree with, with it or not, that is a structure of reality. God the Father, the head of Jesus Christ, Christ the head of every man, men head of women. It's interesting, Paul in verse 3 says, the head of every man is Christ. Whether, and he doesn't mean just Christians, he means the head of every man, whether you're a believer or unbeliever, is Jesus Christ. Jesus, it is Jesus Christ who created every human being, every man, and it is, and it is Jesus Christ. It, it, we have the DNA of Jesus Christ, right, in our hearts. And he rules, he rules over all of us. Whether we realize it or not, he rules over all of us. There's, I'm listening to a lot of debates these days. And, and a lot of debates between believe, unbelievers, like believers and unbelievers, and even like among unbelievers, I'm listening to a lot of debates. And these debates are long. And so what, seem, what is interesting about these debates, especially debates between Christians and unbelievers, is that unbelievers claim that they, they believe in evolution and that they're materialist. Materialism basically means you don't have a soul. All you really are is the neurons in your brain firing. You don't have free will. Free will is, a, is an illusion. All you are is your brain activity. That's all you are. You're just an organic matter. There's nothing inorganic spiritual about you. That's what materialism, materialism is saying. All you are is your brain looking at things and firing off neur like neurons. That's all you are. Unbelievers believe evolution. There's no, nothing that is objectively real and true. Everything is just a process of ever-changing. And we're materialists. There is, and, you know, we're just brain neurons firing. That's all we are. But what's interesting about these unbelievers, so even though they don't believe in objective truth, even though they don't believe in a soul, even though they don't believe in, you know, an ultimate reality, they live as if they do. So I listened, I, 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 I listened to a two-hour debate yesterday between two unbelievers. And these, both of these unbelievers are evolutionary materialists. And yet they argue for two hours what truth is. The one unbeliever is accusing the other believer of being a racist. And they were arguing what truth is for two hours. 
even though they both say they don't believe in ultimate truth, even though they say all they are is their brain neurons firing, they still have to devote two hours of their lives discussing the nature of truth. They say they don't believe in ultimate truth. They say they don't believe in ultimate realities, but they spend two hours think, acting as if they do. Even though unbelievers say we're a product of evolution and materialism, unbelievers cannot help but to strive for love, strive for justice, strive for righteousness. We cannot help but live as if Jesus existed. That's what Paul means when he says Jesus Christ is the Lord of every man. Man cannot help but to live as if Christ existed. And one day, whether you say that you believe in Jesus or not, one day when Jesus is fully revealed, everyone will worship Jesus Christ. One day, Jesus will make himself fully known to everyone. And everyone on that day will realize that he is the ruler of all. And everyone will worship him. Even those who are being sent to hell will praise God and worship Jesus on their way to hell. Because Jesus Christ is the Lord of all men. But as Jesus Christ is the head of every man, men are head of women. Very offensive thing. But before discussing men and female, met headship, female follow, like female following, let's discuss the structure of the Trinity. Because male and female relationship is based on the Trinity. In the Trinity, there are two things that we need to understand about the Trinity. The first thing that we need to understand about the Trinity is the, the essence of the Trinity, the very nature of the Trinity. Trinity is... One God, three persons. One God, three equal persons in the Trinity. God the Father is God, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God. They are same in essence. Means God the Father is fully God, Jesus is fully God, the Holy Spirit is fully God. Jesus Christ has equal power, equal wisdom. Jesus Christ is just as omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. He knows all. He, he is all powerful. And everything, and he's all he, he knows all. He's all powerful. He knows all. In equal force as God the Father. Jesus Christ is not a lesser God. Mormons believe that. Mormons believe Jesus Christ was created by God the Father. So Jesus Christ is a, is a junior God. That's not the Trinity. That's not, biblical. That's not biblical. The Bible is saying Jesus Christ is just as much God as God the Father. They're equal in wisdom, power, strength, knowledge. In a sense, that's what the essence of... In a sense, so the essence of Trinity is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're all equally God. But what is interesting about the Holy Spirit is, no, I'm sorry, the, the, the Trinity is, there's still order to, in the Trinity. Even though Jesus is just as equal to God the Father, Jesus voluntarily subjects himself under the rule, under the headship of God the Father. Jesus Christ, for all eternity, was, was submissive to God the Father. Even though he's equally God, equally important, equally powerful to God, God the Father, Jesus Christ submits himself to the will of God. 
function, there's a functional hierarchy. They're equally God, but within the Godhead, there's a functional hierarchy. There's God the Father, underneath him is God the Son. And, if, and biblically, and we'll, we'll look at this together, for all eternity, Jesus Christ has always subjected himself to the submission of God the Father. Even before the history of time itself, even before the beginning of time, Jesus Christ was under the submissive authority of God the Father. How do you know? First um, Peter chapter one nineteen, First Peter chapter one verses nineteen to twenty, it says, even before he knew before the creation of the world that he was going to obey the Father's will to be the atoning sacrifice for his people. Even before creation started, Jesus Christ knew he was going to submit to the will of his Father, which implies even before the creation of anything, Jesus Christ was under the submission of his Father. Jesus Christ entered the world to do his Father's will. I know we think Jesus came because he loves me, because he didn't want heaven without me, according to that song the pastor William wants us to stop singing. Right? Even, even though Jesus, like, you know, we think, oh, Jesus came for me. Kind of true. But the primary mission objective is Jesus Christ came into the world to obey the will of the Father. First John, John chapter 6, he came into the world not to do his will, but to do the will of him who sent him. This is my Father's, this is the Father's will. For Jesus, that he should not lose anyone the Father gives him, but raise them up on the last day. Jesus says, I have come to the world not to do my will, but to do the will of the Father. It is the Father's will to save his people. That's the Father's will. And Jesus has come to do his Father's will. Jesus says every moment of his life, he lived in the submission to God the Father. He said, Jesus says, I don't teach my words, I teach the word my Father gave me. His short life in this world, he did everything to submit himself to the will of the Father. Garden of Gethsemane, as he was contemplating the cross, the wrath of God going to befall upon him. He didn't want, his will didn't want to do it. That's, but Jesus says, Lord, if, it, if it's your will, please let this cup pass from me but not as my will, but your will be done. He went to the cross to submit to the will of the Father. Even the resurrection, Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. John chapter 10, verse 18. Jesus says, I have the authority to lay down my life. I have the authority to pick my life again, which means he went to the cross. He died on the cross as a submission to God the Father, and he was raised to life as a submission to God the Father's will. He was foreverly submissive to God the Father's will. In this world, he was submissive to God the Father's will. He died to submit to his, God, his Father's will. He was raised up to submit to his Father's will. In all eternity, he will submit to his Father's will. 1 Corinthians chapter, eight, eight, chapter 15, verse 23, I think. Jesus, uh, 28, Jesus says, Paul says, when Jesus returns, right, He's going to make all the universe right. He's going to defeat his enemies. 
He's going, to, he's going to conquer death and drive out all his enemies, and he's going to make this universe perfect. But after he makes this universe perfect, he's going to tie the universe in a bow, and he's going to, he's going to give it to the Father. Even his second coming is to do the will of the Father. Jesus Christ forever is under the submission to the, to the Father's will. Jesus is not less than God the Father, but he submits to the authority of God the Father. That's the Trinity. That's God. God is a fabric of reality. We like to think that fabric of reality is people have equal rights and no one has the right to be under anyone else. We think that's the way the universe should work. But God is telling us, even though everyone's equally valuable, there's still a hierarchy to things. That there's still structure to things. Whether we like it or not, that's how the universe is designed. Are you with me so far? Are we offended so far? No? We're good? Joe is, eh, tread carefully, Pastor Jay. Now let's talk about male and female relationships. Just as the Trinity, just as the Trinity is equal in essence, men and women are equal in essence. Just as Jesus is just as God as God the Father was, and they're equal in omnipotent, omniscient, and everything, in our essence, men and women are the same. If you think just because you're a man, you're more valuable than a woman, you're an idiot and you don't know God. Just because you have an XY chromosome, it makes you a more special individual, you're a fool. The headship of man does not teach essential superiority of men over women. Women are every bit as gifted and talented and wise as men. It's true. Women develop faster than men. And I think that's biological true, right? They're, they're, they're thinking of more mature. They, they mature earlier than men. I know many gifted women lawyers. I know many gifted female speakers. I know I, I can't function without sisters in our church. Our sisters do so much for our church. And, it's, and, and they're not second class. They're just as equally talented and gifted as men. And that's true. but there's a functional reality. Functional reality doesn't mean that you're less valuable than us, but there is also the structure that God has made. Create, he has made the world to be a certain way. We don't know why he did it, but he did it. And that order can be seen in the process of creation. God did not create women from dirt, right? Genesis chapter, chapter 2. He didn't say, okay, both male and women, you can go. He didn't make them simultaneously from dirt. He made men first. And then from man, he made woman. There is a deliberate process that God, has, God, God, God engaged in in the creation of humanity. He created men first, and he created women out of man. There is a functional order to things. And the functional order 
is man is to head and women are to follow. And maybe the headship and following is offensive because we assign certain definition of what it means to be a head. When we, when we think men is a headship, we think about, you know, the chauvinist dads, right, who, who like, don't help out in the kitchen, right, who, like, just orders your moms around, that kind of a thing. And when we think of male headship, we maybe think of all the abuse of men has, has towards women. And maybe submission, we think about all the, you know, muffled voices, silenced voices that women had to go through. To be, to be obedient to men. Maybe we're thinking about all the evils of patriarchy when we think about women being submissive to man. I ask you to just check that and let's just think about what the Bible's definition of headship is. What is the biblical headship of leading? Is it to rule with an iron fist and lord it over people, tell your wife to do certain things? Is that the biblical definition of headship? Is that how Jesus Christ leads his people? Leading, telling people, ruling over them, telling them what to do. That is not biblical headship. That is not the headship that Christ is telling you to exercise. Biblical headship is mimicking Christ as he loves how he loves his people. How does he love his people? He tells truth to them. He's patient with them. He, he loves them. And, for, and the first quality of love is patience. He's patient. He long suffers for them. And he's gracious to them. That's biblical headship. Jesus Christ tells us the truth. Jesus Christ loves and is long-suffering for us. And Jesus Christ is gracious to us. The image of biblical headship, Christ's headship, is very different from sinful man's definition of headship. He gives himself for his people. Men, that is how you're supposed to lead. Walking with women, with your wife, in truth. And I'm not saying preaching it over to your wives. Trust me when I say preaching to your wife, it doesn't work. But the way you treat them and the way you interact with them, it has to be guided by truth. Leading women involves loving them and long-suffering for them, with them. Men get frustrated because when women don't listen to us, we get very frustrated. We get angry. That is not love. That is not long-suffering. You suffer long for that, with that person. One of my best friends is a pastor in Philadelphia. And I think I told you this story. One of his congregate members I think when his wife was in her 60, 50s, early 50, late 50s, she had a mental breakdown, and she, she started to, she says, from now on, I'm going to live as a 12-year-old girl. So from, from the late 50s and on, she dressed like, acted like a 12-year-old girl. 
And this man, my, my, my pastor's member, said he's going to devote the remaining of his, maybe his life, wife will never get better, but he's going to devote the remaining, remainder of his life loving and caring for his wife. The wife that everyone thinks is crazy, he's going to take care of her. Maybe she'll never get better. But there is one person in this world who's going to listen to her and is going to be there for her, and that's his wife. Man, that is how you're supposed to lead your wife. Your wife has much pain and suffering and all the world of suffering in her. You're not trying to correct her, but love her, walk with her, suffer long with her. And be gracious to her when she offends you, when she criticizes you, and they will sometimes. You be gracious and forgiving and always being hopeful. That's what it means to be a male head. Doing that is painful. Leading is hard and painful. It takes a long time. But if you do it right, I guarantee you, I'm experiencing this in my life, God will make your relationship fruitful and he will bring life into your woman. If you, this is how you're supposed to lead. And if you're not, if for those single dudes, if you're not, if you can't do this, then maybe it's better for you not to, get, not, not to be married. And the only way that you can do this, the only way that you can mimic Christ's headship is to look at Christ every day and to be ministered by him. The ability to be truthful, loving, gracious, it doesn't, it doesn't come from within you. It doesn't. It comes outside of you. It comes when you become aware of Christ's standard. And when that Christ's standard becomes your standard, then you can lead your wife like, you, 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 like Christ leads you. Women, what is biblical submission? Biblical submission is not doing whatever your husband tells you to do. Biblical submission is in love and truth and in grace. You help your man, your husband, to be a better leader. To talk and to help and to plan things with him so that he will lead you correctly. There's an element that you need to follow, and that's true. But in truth, love, and grace, you show him truth, not nagging. Nagging is not truth. It's just evil, right? If you think your nagging is love, you're dead wrong. You're wrong. In gentle truth, in love, in grace, you show your husband that, and your husband will become the leader that God wants him to be. That's how we mature. That's how we grow. When men mimic Christ, 
in his relationship with his wife. And women show graciousness and submission to their husbands. That relationship becomes God-glorifying, healthy, magnetic type of relationship. It becomes God-glorifying type of relationship. That's the relationship that God wants us to have. I'm my own independent person. I do what I say. No one can tell me what to do. Maybe seem fair to you. But your relationship will never be glorious. For the sake of the glorious, God-revealing relationship. Men mimic Christ in his headship. Women mimic Christ in his submission to God the Father. That's God's call for us. Let us pray. Father, we are all insane. And the insanity is that we think the structure of the universe is the same as the plans in our, on, in our heads. We think the way we think life ought to be mirrors the fabric of existence. It does not, Lord. They do not. A lot of the much pain in our lives is because we stick to the incorrect view of reality than what is true. What is true, Lord, is when male and female relationships start to reflect the order of of creation, when our relationship with our spouses, Lord, start mirroring the, 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 the order of the Trinity, it is then our relationships flourish and shine. Our relationships never shine when all of us are just arguing for our rights and not submitting to one another. Father, the only way that we can lead effectively, men can be proper heads of their families and the church, is for us to mimic you. It is impossible for us to do your will unless we see you. So it is our prayer that may my brothers whether they're married or unmarried, still we pray that they will mimic you. As he prayed in the, in the, in, in the prayer of confession, may the men and may, may, may my brothers, Lord, build their lives on the cornerstone founded on Jesus Christ. May they love their wives well. May they reflect your grace, your truth, your love to, 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 to their wives. We pray, dear God, that you will be with my sisters. May they mimic you by being truthful, loving, and gentle to their husbands. And may you use my sisters, Lord, to make my brothers into more Christ-reflecting heads so that their relationship can flourish. We pray that you be with all the people in our, in our church. Whether they're, We pray the single people will mimic you in their singleness. May they, may they build their faith on the rock of Jesus Christ. 
We pray that may you give us the ability to see outside of ourselves every day and embrace the truth of, 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 of your reality. All these things, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.